There's a song, there's a band from the 80s. It's interesting, it's uh, a very diverse band called UB40. But I was listening to this song, and just listen to the lyrics real quick. The more I learn, the less I know about before. The less I know, the more I want to look around. Digging deep for clues on That's it. That's good. Thank you. That, those words right there become the theme for what we're doing right now. Every hour and every day I'm learning more. The more I learn, the less I know about before. The less I know, I mean, the more, whatever he said. <laughs> yeah, it's true, though. And for some, for, on, on some level, it's true for all of Messianic Judaism. Like, we have to, we think a lot. And so here we sit, searching for higher ground. Heaven or hell. Warning, this is an overgeneralization I'm about to make, but would you agree that according to the majority of Protestant thinking, there are two destinations when you die, heaven or hell? Can we agree on that? Okay, good. One is heaven. Heaven is a place by this understanding of eternal bliss for those in Jesus, that is to say those who have said a prayer that Jesus is Lord and have accepted them into their heart. They're going to heaven. And we've already talked about some, some about that. This place called heaven where we go when we die. We made some important clarifications about that, also about the kingdom of heaven. There's another place. The second is called hell. Much like heaven, there is not a particularly descriptive or uh, volume, voluminous amount of content in the Bible about this place called hell. Other than what has developed into this very well-known concept, specifically a fiery place of eternal torment executed upon the wicked, that is, a.k.a. those who did not say a prayer, accepting Jesus into their heart. These punishments there are inflicted by an ever-increasingly ingenious methods of torture, presided over by the highest power of evil, the Dark Lord, Satan. Those are two perspectives on heaven and hell that are pretty common. Are we still in agreement with that? Are you aware, probably are, that much of that development was injected into the thinking and teaching that came into existence much later than the teachings of Yeshua and the apostles? Much later. And that the New Testament has virtually nothing to say about the concept of this hell and that associated word. But hold on now, someone said. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, the unquenchable fire, the worm that shall never die. Jesus himself puts hell in the Bible. And we should talk about that. Because the word hell is indeed in your translations of the Bible. Your translations of the Bible. 
particularly the King James. Have you ever asked yourself about the word hell? Where we get the word hell? Hell is an Anglo-Saxon word. Anglo-Saxon means at the earliest about the 5th century. It's from a word, helon or zelon. I don't speak Anglo-Saxon, so I don't know how you say it. But the word means to cover up, to cover, to hide, to conceal. That's where hell comes from. Cover up. Where's the torture in that? But Jesus talks about hell a lot. Well, that's all over the Gospels. Hell. I mean, Yeshua says it, right? Also, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the actual word there in the Greek? In the Greek, the word is Hades, which brings up a whole nother interesting bit of consideration. Where does Hades come from? Hades comes from Greek, which the Bible is the new, the, the, un, let's clear this up. I'm calling it the New Testament for sake of ease. The New Testament is not a great word to describe this body of work. It is the Gospels and the Apostolic Scriptures. But today, I'm going to be calling it the New Testament and the Old Testament or the Tanakh, just for clarity. Apostolic Scriptures is a lot of syllables. Hades. An 8th century text by Homer in the Odyssey portrays death as a world of shades wearied by their memories of life. Another text from around the same century, Hesiod or Hesiod, his theogony or the birth of the gods discusses the rebellion of superhuman titans against the Olympian gods. They are punished into a deep, deep place in the bowels of Hades called Tartarus. Ever heard of Tartarus? It's in your Bible. Once in Peter. 2 Peter 2.4. Here Peter's talking about it's Tartarao. Tartarao in your Bibles. Peter's talking about a special place reserved in hell for the angels that, that uh, got sent there. Tartarao. Strange. A deepest hell in Hades, Tartarao, that has something to do with Olympian gods and titans in our New Testament. Strange. Interestingly, that does have some relevance to a place that we need to explore, not in person, God forbid. A word that we will find on the lips of Yeshua in the New Testament and once on, in James. Eleven times for Yeshua, once in James. Yeshua uses this word, which is often translated, again, hell. All of these words are translated hell in your Bible. By the way, can I talk for a little while today? Because there's a whole bunch of stuff to say. My dad looked at his watch. He gave me five extra minutes than I usually have. <laughs> Gehenna. That's the Greek. Gehinnom in Hebrew. Literal translation, anyone know? The Valley of Hinnom. It's in the Old Testament, Gehinnom. But we call it Gehenna. And Yeshua says, Gehenna. 
And that's a really interesting text. When we, this is a really great text. Yeshua says in Matthew 10, you should not be afraid of those killing the body, but not being able to kill the soul. Indeed, rather, you should fear the one being able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now that creates some very interesting difficulties. We just talked about immortal souls. We just talked about that development. And I'm going to, my worst fear is that I confuse you. So I'm not going to do that, which is why I have to talk a little bit longer. Because there's, it can get all balled up confusing here. If immortal means, in soul language, if immortal means that, that they can live, souls can live on after death, then yes. If it means they cannot be destroyed ever, then Yeshua just said no. Because we should fear the one who can destroy your soul and your body in Gehenna. But we'll maybe revisit that soon. Point is, for now, Gehenna, a word which developed its context prior to Yeshua, during and especially after, Gehenna had a very certain connotation to the audience and the language and to people listening to Yeshua. Gehenna. And it is translated hell in almost every one of your translations. So, man, hell. What the? It's diverse. <laughs> Hades, Gehenna, Tartarao. I mean, it's diverse here. And maybe, just maybe, there's something we should know. Some things we should know about something that is considered to be one of two eternal destinations for us. Maybe there's some clarification. But to do that, we need to take a step in the way, way back machine. Okay? The way back machine is the Gospels and the Apostolic Scriptures. The way, way back machine is going into the Torah, into the Tanakh, and looking at some things that are really, really important. So that's what we want to do as we look at an all-important word and concept, which I already heard someone say when I asked a question. We need to look today through the Jewish lens of the Tanakh. Next week, we need to look through the second temple Jewish lens, the Pharisaic Jewish lens. And you'll find that is remarkably aligned with the Yeshua view in the Gospels. Because really what we're here to understand is heaven and hell, eternal destinies, location after death, before resurrection, after resurrection in Yeshua's teaching and language, and I was writing this message and about to break down in tears, not because it moved me in any way. I was asking myself, what the Gehenna have I gotten myself <laughs> into here? Why did I even start doing this? I can only trust God that he's going to reveal that to us in the end of it. We have already discussed a bit of the Old Testament perspective on death from Job, Ecclesiastes, Psalms. But to understand the New Testament perspective, we need to dig a bit deeper into that. So I don't think I'll repeat myself from anything we've already said too much. But what's the word? What's the concept? What am I going to talk about right now when I talk about death in the Old Testament? The seminary guy gets it every time. Sheol. Who knows the word Sheol? 
Who can give me a crystal clear definition of what Sheol is? A place for the dead. Very good. Well, here's what King James says about it. 31 times it's translated hell, 30 times it's translated grave, once it's three times it's translated pit. All the other translations, like the ESV, stay pretty close to Sheol. Well, not pretty close. They, they do say Sheol. And what's interesting about that is there is no non-Semitic language, no non-Semitic writing, non, I'm sorry, non-Hebrew Semitic language that, that uses Sheol. It is a Tanakh word. It is God's word if the scriptures are inspired for what we're going to learn today. This is where our story and understanding begins. What is Sheol? Let's look at Genesis 37. Probably should have made slides, but just listen. I'll give you the summary. They tell Jacob, your son is dead. They bring his clothes, his bloody garment to him. And Jacob says these words. <sighs> if harm, oh, that's the other one. He refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. He hears news of Joseph's death. He will die. Where will he go? What is he doing? Where is Joseph? He's in Sheol. Where will Jacob go? He's in Sheol. He's going to go to Sheol, he says. Genesis 42. Now they tell him we need to take your other son, Benjamin. We need to take him. He goes, no, you can't do that. If you do that and something happens to him, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. If Benjamin dies, I'll die. And where will he go? You can say it. You'll be right. Sheol. Now, Listen real quick. If Sheol, which is translated hell a lot in the, some Bibles, if Sheol is the place of the wicked, we have a serious problem on our hands right now. This is Jacob. This is the patriarch, of, one of the patriarchs of Israel. Prayers are answered according to Jewish, Jewish thought in the merit of this guy who is going to hell. What's he headed south for? The KJV actually here doesn't use the word hell. It says grave. So, you know, that works. But when it arbitrarily becomes hell in other places, that can get very confusing. And it is. Another example. We just finished this Torah portion two or three weeks ago. Korach. Remember Korach? What happened? The earth opened up and all of the people that were with him got swallowed into the earth. Where'd they go? That's what the text says anyway. It says they went down alive into Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished. What happened? They died and were in Sheol. Were they wicked? I don't really know if they were wicked. I mean, they were rebellious, but so am I. And so are you. I don't think you're wicked. I don't know. But the point is, they were going to the same place Jacob was going. Psalms are full of Sheol verses. 88, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. What does that mean? Very obviously it means I'm going to die. Where am I going to go? I'm drawing near to Sheol. 
Isaiah 38, Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness, and on and on and on and on and on. But whenever you find, particularly in the King James and other translations, whenever you find something in the Psalms or anywhere else related to anything having to do with the wicked, when the word is translated, when the word is Sheol, it all of a sudden becomes hell. It's not grave anymore. Now it's hell. Now what happens when we do that? They do that. It injects a very clear connotation and meaning into something that's not there. It's just not there for that. That must be noted. The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, nowhere in the Old Testament is the abode of the dead regarded as a place of punishment or torment. Baker's Dictionary of Theology. Sheol is uniformly depicted in the Old Testament as the eternal, amoral abode of the righteous and unrighteous alike. Hear those, that's important. This is not to say, and this is me talking, not Baker, there are instances where Sheol is depicted as a place you don't want to be. I'll talk about that in just one second. A place of condemnation. But the overall concept in the Old Testament and Sheol is not hell as presented in the classic definition by that word. That word what I mean, means what I said in the very beginning of this message for most people. Two meanings for Sheol, the grave, that is to say, not literally the place in the dirt where they dug you out and buried you, but you're dead. You, the, the, you're being dead, and it is also a kind of post-mortem repository for souls. You with me? That's Sheol's Old Testament usage and definition. The state of being dead and the place where the dead go. Where is it? Well, generally speaking, by these texts, it's in the earth. Now, we'll find out in the first century, you can't really say that. But you go down to Sheol, that's what it says, and the earth is, you know, the earth swallowed up Korach and all that. So generally speaking, in the Old Testament, that's what happens. And that will actually answer for us one question about how Hades got into the Bible anywhere. How did we get this Greek mythological term into our Bibles? It has to do with the Old Testament definition of Sheol. When the Septuagint was created, that is the Tanakh translated into, he, into Greek in Alexandria, they were looking for a word, how do we do Sheol? What is that in Greek? Well, Hades. It's the closest thing we got. And that worked its way into Jewish literature in Greek, too. Pseudepigrapha and Apocrypha and other things. And the Gospels. So it's a linguistic issue. But that also has a strange connotation, which we already talked about. Hades, the dark place of the dead in Greek mythology and the lord of the underworld. That's strange. But anyway, in the earth. A couple other points to note. The ancient version of Sheol is not a pleasant place. It's not. 
It's a place of darkness, David says. There are a lot of other places. There are indications, sometimes in the text you'll read them, that there were conversations or interactions in Sheol. But we need to be very clear about this too. Sheol is not life in any sense of the word. It is not life after death by what we might call a traditional Christian perspective. It's not that. Why? Because in Judaism, you cannot have a body separated from a soul and have any form of actual life. That is not possible. And that will very much factor into this upcoming discussion in the Second Temple Jewish thought. When a soul and body are united, a person is alive. Only when the soul and body are reunited in resurrection is someone alive after death. Okay? Resurrection makes a soul and body alive. Sheol is in no way living. But if Sheol is not hell and fire and brimstone and torment, torment and gnashing of teeth, why do people express such a desire to not be there? It should just be like, oh, oh. well, I'll tell you, death is not fun. We, none of us have experienced it. But in this way of thinking, death is not desirable. And that's what that was. Your life and your earthly existence are over. You are, in a sense, now separated from God. And something separated from God is not good. It is, in a sense, evil. That was sort of the way. And, and it's not that God can't peer down in and, you know, see what's happening or that God's not everywhere. But in the sense, on earth, you had fellowship, you had praising, celebration in the relationship with God. Ecclesiastes 9.5 tells us, The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So death takes your relationship with God. It's over in this way of thinking. And we are the only ones of God's creation able to comprehend that fact. So we don't want that. A brown bear doesn't care what happens when it dies. Psalm 6.5, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? In the words of Kohelet, in the words of, of Shlomo, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Life, man. I don't want to not have my life. I don't want to die and go to Sheol. Now this sounds different than what the New Testament teaches. And it is. The Old Testament understanding of Sheol bears very little resemblance to the Gehenna or the hell that we read about in the New Testament. Why? Well, we've already talked a little bit about progressive revelation, right? How perspectives change. Historical, yes. It sometimes happens historically that things happen, but I believe it is also supernatural when we consider Yeshua in the midst of it. And we'll talk again, we'll go back and talk about resurrection and all that. But if I can summarize the Old Testament view of death for you quickly, and I'm borrowing from a book that's called The Formation of Hell. 
I haven't read the whole book. I only have a quote. Don't go read it and say that I recommended it to you. The Torah does not have a lot to say about the afterlife, certainly not heaven and hell. Do you know why that is? It has to do with what I just told you about what it means to die. The Torah and the Tanakh speak a lot about God's covenant fidelity. That means things like when you pray the Shema every day and you say, if you obey my commandments, I'll give you wine, I'll give you grass, I'll keep you long in the land that I promised to your fathers, your children will be blessed. Here's a great text that is going to make this point for me. Deuteronomy 30, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving him, walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, you shall live and multiply and the Lord will bless you where? In heaven? No, in the land you will take possession of. It is blessings, covenant fidelity on this earth. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. In other words, if you obey the commandments, life will go well with you and you will live happily. If you do not obey the commandments, life will not go well with you and you will not live happily. But either way, you're going to die and go to Sheol. Thus, to some degree, this is where it's at, according to the Torah. Right here, right now, live in covenant with God. And when it's over, it's over. And all means all, righteous and the wicked, headed south, according to this in-the-earth philosophy. But a problem emerged, as you might expect, For such a radical, amazingly different perspective to emerge, something had to have changed. What was it? I'll let you think on those answers. And I'm going to give you one. They may have all been right. I didn't hear any of them. But they may have all been right. But I'm going to give you this one. The term is theodicy. Good, good theological term. Know what theodicy is? It's not a writing by Homer. That's the odyssey. (laughs) We already talked about that one. Theodicy. The vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. The vindication of divine goodness and providence in the view of the existence of evil. This is an age-old question. Why is there evil? How could there be evil? God, but God, but God. God is just. He is righteous. He is faithful. His word is good and true. His covenants are forever and they're a promise. And if one lives according to his ways, it's a reward, if not a punishment. Does that always happen? Absolutely not. That doesn't always happen. And that's the problem that emerged. I'll clarify it. 
How could it be that the righteous on this earth could suffer like that? How could the wicked prosper? How could it be that God's house could be destroyed? The temples. How could Israel be exiled? How could Greece and Rome dominate God's people and take over their land and not let them worship God? It's just like Pharaoh desecrating their temples. It could not be. That is not in line with the attributes of God. His wisdom, his justice, his mercy, the Torah, his promises. And therefore, therefore, there must be more. There must be more than this life. There must be reward and punishment in the future. And centuries before Yeshua came on the scene, we begin to see this idea emerge in the writings. First Enoch, the Apocrypha, things before the New Testament. We see in the book of Maccabees, for sure, the first idea of a resurrection for the righteous, a reward for the righteous dead. How could the righteous, heroic Jew be put to death for refusal to compromise Torah and these Hellenistic, pork-eating, Torah-violating Jews are prospering under Antiochus Epiphanes? How could that be? It can't be, because God would never allow it, and therefore there's more. There's something so much more. Now listen. Three guys were not sitting around the table at the temple and said, hmm, let's think about this. We need to create something that will make people believe what we want them to believe. Let's talk about heaven. All of the shades of this stuff, not to use the Hades language of shades, but all of these shadows of these things were already in existence. The Psalms do talk about the punishment of the wicked. Not any burning, you know, submerged in, you know, fecal matter on fire for the rest of your life. Not that kind of thing that emerged way later. But the fact that the wicked would be destroyed is mentioned in the Psalms. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are inclined to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to wipe. He will wipe them out, their memory from the earth. Evil will slay the wicked. The haters of the righteous will be condemned. And on and on. And just the same way that we see the wicked, these shadows in this old writing, we also see hints and clues to the resurrection. And these guys, these writers, these God-inspired people who are writing the books that we read today, really began to dig into the text. They had already been doing that. But out of it emerges, wow, wow, resurrection, the central component, the faith that we can come up from Sheol, the wicked have no hope, but the righteous can be renewed. 
Well, where'd you come up with that? Well, it's right here in the text. Job, who is certainly no optimist on death, and particularly in the middle of a very depressing set of verses in Job 14, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer. You would long for the work of your hands. In other words, I hate my life, but God, I believe you could save me. I believe you could bring me back from the dead. The Psalms, equally dark at times, we find more hope. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they're appointed for Sheol, that's the wicked. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. Interesting. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. What does that mean? That means that I died and I came back because God brought me back from Sheol. So what I'm saying is, though it became clearly articulated in the centuries that we're talking about here, it was there, but God had to bring it out. And he did it at a particular time. And it all centers, as we talked about last week, on Yeshua. He was the king. He was, he was the, he was, I don't want to say linchpin. I think that might be a bad thing. But he was the, he was the glue that held all this together. We're not quite there yet. And of course, the beautiful, the beautiful prayer of Hannah, Hannah. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And Daniel, the, the text, although there's some pretty, pretty good debate about when Daniel was actually written. But Daniel says, those who sleep, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament Sheol was the destination of the dead, righteous and wicked. It was not hell. It was not a torture chamber of eternal punishment. But there was for the righteous the idea that God would bring them up. And as we discussed last week, it is that world, that world where all of this is hustling and bustling and boiling and stewing and steaming, all of this thought where Yeshua stepped in and began to talk about these things. Yeshua, your Messiah, your rabbi, your teacher, moved in at this time. Now, speaking of Yeshua, in this world where he stepped in, the suffering of the righteous, theodicy, prospering of the wicked, how can there be evil when God is good? These sound like familiar questions. We're still asking them. But Yeshua died. I don't know if I have made that clear to you ever before. There's a really good thing he did three days later. But he did die. He died on a cross. Where did he go? You can say it. You'll probably be right. We're closing here. Yeshua was perfectly righteous. He died. 
Matthew 12:40 for as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the whale's belly so shall the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth Where did Korah go into the heart of the earth Where did Jacob go down to Sheol 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth the heart of the earth man that sounds like Sheol and it is but it gets better to the thief on the cross in Luke 23:43 it doesn't he doesn't say dude it's going to be fine chill out we're going and we're going to be floating on the clouds when this is all said and done we'll be at daddy's house it's going to be good just chill out he says today you'll be with me in paradise right well paradise that means heaven Now, there's some debate about whether or not that actually means what it says it means. It depends on where you put the comma, actually. Anyone aware of a concept called soul sleep? It's very, very prevalent, especially within a lot of Messianic Jewish thinking. Soul sleep, the idea that, and it's, a, it's Seventh-day Adventist theology and a lot. And, and you know, I, I, this is the great thing about teaching something like this. It's possible they could be right. I don't know. But I'm going to say what Yeshua said for now. He says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And here's the argument, by the way. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Or truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See the difference? But I'm going to go with the second as being what Yeshua said. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And what we're going to find out is that Yeshua's Jewish interpretation is absolutely consistent with that second temple period in which he taught. And he would favor. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise. But we just read that he went to Sheol. That didn't sound like paradise from anything that we've just discussed today. It was dark, dreary, gravedom, a place of the dead. And we know Yeshua went there, and yet he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise? Well, what we learn today is what was. How could it possibly be that Yeshua and the thief could be in paradise and Sheol at the same time? How? Next week. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>